Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We have come in our study of this, what I believe is the greatest of letters ever written. We've come to the 14th verse of the 10th chapter. I want to begin by giving you just a quick overview of the section that we're going to cover this morning. Romans 10, 14, down to the end of the chapter, verse 21. And what we can do just... To kind of put it in outline form, we could divide these eight verses into two sections. Verses 14 through 17 being the first section. And in that section, what Paul does is that he sets before us the components that are necessary for salvation. For anyone that is saved, the components that are necessary for salvation are outlined in verses 14 to 17. And then, following in the second section there, verses 18 to 21, what Paul does is he takes those components necessary for salvation and he applies them to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people of his day. Why does he do that? It's important for me to remind you of this. It is the theme of chapter 10. Paul, over and over again in chapters 9, 10, and 11, is dealing with the situation of the Israelite nation, namely that they are accursed and cut off from Christ. That these, quote, chosen people of God who had so many of the spiritual blessings from God as seen down through the Old Testament there in Paul's day and is true in our day today that the vast majority of them are unsaved. They're outside of the blessing of God. They're rejected. They've rejected Christ. And so what Paul is doing in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, is he, he's explaining why that is. Because that's a significant problem. If God is a promise-keeping God and He's made all of these promises to Israel, then what about the promises in God's Word to us? Is He a God who keeps those promises? Can we depend upon Him to do that? And so He is using this case of Israel to prove that God is in fact a promise-keeping God. And so He is answering the question And again here in chapter 10, why is it that the vast majority of the Israelites are unsaved? In chapter 9, he answered that question. And here's what he said in chapter 9. The reason that the vast majority of the Israelites are unsaved is because God saves through election. And the reason that the vast majority are unsaved is because God chooses to have mercy on whom He wants to have mercy. 
He chooses to have compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. So his answer in chapter 9 to why most of the Israelites are unsaved is that it's because of the election of God. But then he does something different in chapter 10. In chapter 10, what we're going to see is that instead of claiming that it's God's election that is the cause of the vast majority of the Israelites being unsaved, he actually lays the responsibility at the feet of the Jew themselves and says that the reason that they're unsaved because they are an obstinate, a disobedient, a stubborn people who refuse to accept Jesus Christ. So that's just an overview of where we're going here this morning. Last verse that we looked at last Sunday was verse 13. Let me just read that as a setup for the verses that we're going to look at today. Verse 13 makes this incredible invitation, gives this incredible promise about salvation. Listen to it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's an open invitation, an incredible promise, Paul says, from God. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he follows with a perfect complementary truth in the next two verses. Because verses 14 and 15, they compel us to do this, to take this incredible invitation open to all, this incredible offer of free salvation to all who will call upon the Lord He compels us to take it to lost people. Listen, verses 14 to 15. How then will they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. First of all, let me just show you here what Paul outlines as the necessary components for salvation. For a person to come to saving faith in Christ, certain things must be in place. He's going to tell us what those are right here. So verse 13 All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the question. If calling upon the Lord leads to salvation, then what must happen in order for a person to call upon the name of the Lord? That's the first question that he answers. What must happen? And here's what must happen. I'm going to paraphrase it. It's this. They must believe in the Lord. They must believe in the Lord. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Do you see the truth there? No one asks to be saved unless they believe they need to be saved. And no one asks Jesus to save them unless they see Jesus as the Savior. How will they call upon Him for salvation 
unless they believe that He is the Savior that He claims to be. That's the truth that Paul is communicating there in the first part of verse 14. You see, it's the calling on the Lord that indicates that they trust Him as Savior because they wouldn't call if they didn't believe, if they didn't trust. So what's necessary for a person to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation? Something has to happen so that they believe that He is who He said that He was. That He did what He claimed to do. And that they need a Savior. That they are lost and hopeless and cut off from God and that Jesus is the way for them to come to God. So Paul is telling us here that a person will not call upon Jesus for salvation until they're at the point of believing that He's the Savior and that they need a Savior. Second component. If believing in the Lord is necessary for salvation, what must happen for someone to believe in the Lord? What must happen? What does Paul say? He says, they must hear the Lord. They must hear the Lord. Listen to the second part of verse 14. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Notice that I said that it's necessary for a person to, quote, hear the Lord. Let me make that even more obvious. What I didn't say is that it is necessary for a person to hear about the Lord. Now, it's true that a person must hear about the Lord. We'll get, that, get to that in a minute. But right here, the truth included in the grammatical construction of Paul's sentence in the Greek is that they must hear the Lord. The, if you look in the Greek at what Paul specifically says, he doesn't communicate that someone must hear about the Lord, but they must hear the Lord Himself. You see, Paul says the very same thing a few verses later. Jump down to verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Hearing through the Word of Christ. It's the Word of Christ that a person must hear. It's the call of Christ that brings a person to salvation. It's not simply a word about Christ. It's a word which Christ Himself, through His Spirit, speaks to come and regenerate a person and call them to faith in Him for salvation. So what must happen for a person before they trust in the Lord to save them, they must hear the Lord. They must hear the Lord. It brings us to the next necessity. If hearing the Lord is necessary for salvation, what must happen to a person in order for them to hear the Lord? What does Paul say? He says, they must hear about the Lord from someone who knows the Lord. 
They must hear about the Lord from someone who knows the Lord. Look at verse 14c. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? To hear, someone must proclaim. If you are saved, didn't that take place for you? Didn't some, at some point, someone through some means communicate to you the good news of Jesus Christ so that you could hear and believe and call upon Him and be saved? That is the way that God has chosen to work. It's the sharing of the good news done through one who has been saved through the good news that God uses to bring people unto salvation. Finally, if it's necessary for someone who knows the Lord to share the good news about the Lord that they know, what must be true of those who proclaim that good news. And here's what Paul says. Paul says they must be sent by the Lord. They must be sent by the Lord. Romans 10, 15. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now I believe, let me just give you a little clarity here, how I understand this word preaching here. I take it, in two ways. Certainly, there is the aspect of preaching that is vocational in nature. That's what I'm doing. God has called me to this as my primary calling in life, my primary responsibility that I am discharging right here, right now in front of you. I am called to be a vocational preacher of the gospel. But I do not believe that this passage is limited to that given the context. This is also talking to all followers of Christ. That if you're a follower of Christ, you have been given a commission. And your commission, as well as mine, is to go and make disciples of all nations. And in order to do that, the good news of Jesus must be proclaimed because how can people call on one they haven't heard? And how can they hear and believe unless someone proclaims that message to them? So the proclamation of the good news is a responsibility and a privilege given to every follower of Jesus Christ. You as a follower have been sent. You have received the great Commission that Jesus Christ has given. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you. Revelation 22.17 Listen to this. Referring to those who have been saved to our followers. Listen. Let him who hears say, Come. You see that? Those who hear and accept the gospel are also those who are to say, come to Christ and be saved. So one of the implicit truths then in this statement, listen to this. This is really critical. 
one of the implicit truths here is that God has only given one means. One and only one means by which people hear the gospel and in the hearing have faith, have trust, and through that faith and trust call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. There's only one means by which that happens. And what is that one means? It is people who know him who are sent to proclaim him so that those who don't can be saved. He has given no other means. Listen again to the statement. And how are they, we could say anyone, and how is anyone to hear unto salvation without someone preaching? In other words, there is only one way. It is the communication coming from those who know him so that those who don't can put their faith in him, call upon him, and be saved. Only one means. Let me just illustrate that. I think it's one of the critical truths that Paul is proclaiming here. So I want to camp on this for a minute. Let me illustrate it from the Old Testament, first of all. What do we read over and over again in the Old Testament? We read statements like this. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. These prophets of the Lord that when God wanted to speak to his people, he came to individuals and gave them a message to share. We don't find him just directly communicating. We find the normative pattern of the Old Testament in that God comes to his people and through his people speaks to people. It is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Let's go to the New Testament and I'll make it even more vivid. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we have an incredible story of Cornelius' conversion. Cornelius is a Gentile, and, but he's a devout man, and he's a man that is continuously helping others and praying to God, and he has a vision where an angel comes to him, and he says to Cornelius, I want you to send some men to Joppa, so that they can go there and find a man by the name of Simon Peter, so that Simon Peter can come back to you and tell you and your household what you need to do to be saved. So here's the question. The angel was there. The angel was talking. Why didn't the angel just give the message to Cornelius on how he could be saved? Well, here's why. Because God has chosen one means by which he communicates the saving message to people and it's through his people that he communicates that. Let me give you an even more vivid example. Acts chapter 9. Saul is on the way to Damascus. Saul is 
breathing out murderous threats against God's people. And he's on his way to Damascus with authority to imprison and confiscate the property of those who are followers of, quote, the way, who are Christians. And on the way to Damascus, a bright light shines upon him and he's knocked to the ground and he hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him. And the Lord Himself, this is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in person speaking to Saul. And what does He say to Saul? He talks to him. He humbles him. He even introduces Himself to Saul saying, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then what does he do? He says to Saul, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Isn't that just incredible? Here is, who better to give the saving message than the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? Who could give a more compelling presentation of the gospel than Jesus? And yet Jesus says, go into Damascus and you'll be told. And then the Spirit of God appears to Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go. I want you to go to Saul. And I want you to communicate a message to him and to pray for him. Now why Did God do it that way? It's because He has chosen a way to communicate His saving message to lost people. And the way that God has chosen, the means is the human agency. He has chosen that that is the way, the only way that He is going to communicate His message to a lost world. It's pretty incredible truth. Incredible privilege and an incredible responsibility for every single follower of Christ. How can they hear unless someone is sent? You're a Christian. You have been sent. Then Paul comes back to highlight the subject of the chapter. He turns his attention again upon Israel and their lost condition in verse 16. Let me read 16 and 17. But they, Israel or the Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see what Paul does here? Watch how he applies what he just has said to the Israelite people. He says here in verse 16 that not all the Israelites have believed the gospel. In fact, what we know is very few of them have believed the gospel. But what he does in verses 18 through 21 is that he takes these components necessary for salvation and he asks this question. Whose fault is it that Israel has not believed? 
Is it because they haven't received the necessary components of salvation so that they could be saved? Is there a reason, legitimate reason, that they have not believed in the gospel? He applies that question to them based upon the components listed in verses 14 and 15. Listen, let me read verses 18 through 20. Paul writes, but I ask, Have they, the Israelites, not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. What Paul does here in verse 18, he affirms that yes, indeed, the Israelites have everything that is necessary for them to receive and salvation, to call out upon the name of the Lord. What do they have? They've had someone that has went to them and preached to them. So they have the truth. They've heard the truth. And the truth that they've heard can produce faith through that hearing so that there can be believing and a calling upon the Lord unto salvation. So what Paul is doing here is he proves that the Jews have had every opportunity to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and be saved so that they are without excuse. And what he does here is that he uses two heavy hitters, again from the Old Testament, Moses and Isaiah, to back up the truth that he's proclaiming. First of all, in verse 19, he gives a quote from Moses in which Moses writes, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation and with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. What Moses prophesied about was that the uncircumcised people, the pagan Gentiles, what God would do is that He would begin to call them to Himself and they would come into the blessing of salvation and the Israelites would see them and become jealous over the blessings of God that was being poured out upon them and it would stir them up to seek the salvation offered in Christ. And then he even says it in a more profound way from a quote from Isaiah in verse 20. Look at what he says from Isaiah. He even identifies it as a bold statement. I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. He says from Isaiah, Paul makes the point, look, the Gentiles... They weren't even seeking God. Isaiah said that they would be people who cared less about God, and yet God would proactively pursue them and bring them to Himself in salvation. Incredible. When the Israelites were so zealous for God, and yet kind of in a wholesale way were outside of the blessing of God, unsaved and accursed, here's the Gentiles who could care less about God, that God is proactively 
like a hound from heaven pursuing them to save them. And again, the same truth here, that God would use that to incite the Israelites to jealousy, to stir them up, to seek the salvation found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That brings us to verse 21. As a conclusion to Paul's argument, remember again what is the key component of the argument in chapter 10. Why are there so many Israelites unsaved? Watch how he brings all of this chapter to a concluding statement in verse 21 and by implication shows who is at fault for the lost condition of Israel. Verse 21, But of Israel, he says, this is Isaiah, a quote from Isaiah again, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Isaiah pictures God standing before His chosen people, the Israelites, holding out His arms, longing, begging, pleading, freely offering them salvation. And yet, He prophesies that they will be disobedient and obstinate and refuse to accept, but instead reject their Savior. So what is the reason that they are not receiving His salvation? It is because they refuse to place their faith in Jesus Christ, the only salvation that God has provided. So the responsibility is laid at the feet of the Jew for this widespread cut off from God's situation of the Jewish nation. And what Paul is doing here is he's using the Israelites to teach a profound lesson about the salvation of God toward all people. And I'll try to show you the two aspects of that as I close here. But the fact is here that they're lost because they refuse to be found. They are unsaved because they determined to reject their Savior. So let me close with this. Here we are faced again with the great paradox between chapter 9 of Romans and chapter 10 of Romans. Notice carefully the word that I chose there. We're faced with the great paradox between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Not the great contradiction, the great paradox. The great truths that to finite mind look irreconcilable, but to a divine mind and person and work is perfectly reconcilable. And here is the paradox. The truth of Romans 9 
over and over and over again in almost 40 verses is that God is sovereign in salvation, that God elects freely and unconditionally without constraint those whom he chooses to elect to salvation. That, that's the sovereign work according to the eternal decrees of God. Then in chapter 10, here's the paradox. That those who are not saved have every opportunity to be saved, and yet they reject their Savior, so that the responsibility for their lost condition is laid at their own feet, not God's. And that is the consistent message of the Scripture, that both of those paradoxical truths are communicated throughout the Word of God, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Let me just paint it one more time. The picture of chapter 9 is the picture of a sovereign God who works according to His eternal decrees, having compassion on those whom he wants to have compassion on, showing mercy to those whom he wants to show mercy upon. And the very same man who wrote that in the very same letter, in the very next chapter with that truth, comes the truth of chapter 10. And the picture is that same sovereign God standing before his people, outstretched arms, saying, Would you come? Come and receive salvation. I long for you to be saved. Anyone who calls upon the name, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever will may come and be saved. One picture after another. And in the human, finite, limited reasoning, we want to say contradiction, but in the eternal, infinite, divine reality, it's not a contradiction. It is a perfect complement, a paradox to us, but God is big enough for both of those truths. See, Brad, how can you preach both of those truths? You're talking out of both sides of your face. There's only one way I know to do that. If I deny either one, I am denying direct statements, undeniable statements from Scripture. And I believe that this is the inerrant Word of God. I believe all of the truth here is to be believed and embraced. And I do my best. I certainly have a lot to learn. Matter of fact, the more that I learn, the more I find out that I do not know. But what I do know is that both of those truths are in this word. Both of them. And so I embrace them both. Even if they transcend the limits of my finite ability, they do not transcend the limits of my faith because my God is big enough for both of those to be true. He's big enough. He said it is so. He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. 
And it is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They are both true. So what then is the application? Very simply, two points of application I draw and then I'll close. Point one is this. If you're here this morning and you're unsaved, Jesus Christ is standing here. He's extending His arms to you. He is the God with nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet and a thorn-pierced brow and a spear-thrust scar in His side. And He is saying to you, come to Me and be saved. You who are weary and heavy laden, come and take from me my yoke. My burden is easy and light. Come and receive the salvation that I want to give to you. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Believe in the truth of the good news of Jesus that I have been proclaiming this morning and you will be saved. And then secondly, critical truth for us that are here and are followers of Jesus Christ, and it's this. If you're saved, you are sent. If you're saved, you are sent. If you are a worshiper of God, you're a witness for Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been given a commission to carry the good news of Jesus to a lost world. For how can they hear and believe and call unto salvation unless you proclaim the truth to them? Only through human agency the means of human agency has God determined to communicate the truth that people hear, that produces faith, and leads them to call for salvation. So what an incredible privilege we have and what an incredible responsibility we have to be the proclaimers, the heralds of that truth. So say, as Isaiah said here, am I, Lord, send me. And pray for the power of the Spirit and the opportunities of the Spirit to engage. Pray for the hearts of those that are around you that are lost, asking God to open their eyes of their hearts and asking God to show you when the opportunity is there and then step through those opportunities to be a proclaimer of the truth so that they can be saved. Would you please stand? Pray with me, please, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the balance of your truth. Thank you that you're a good God. Thank you that you're a God who longs to save, a God who stands arms out continually as the text there says, all day long and that is 
every day, all day long, holding out your hands, even in the midst of our rebellion, saying, come and be saved. Thank you that you're that kind of a God. I pray that you would take the truth and the hearing of the truth that has happened here today and those that are not saved and through that let faith come from the hearing and with the faith let there be a calling unto salvation so that all those who call upon the name of the Lord are saved and then Lord let us as Christians understand our commission let us who are saved feel the responsibility and the privilege of the high calling of being sent let us who are worshipers take up the mantle responsibility of being witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ and then trusting you to engage our witness with the very voice of Christ himself who calls the lost through regeneration unto himself. Do that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.